and welcome back to The Stakes After Dark, our nightly review of all the action from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland and the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. We're almost through, and on this penultimate night of our mini-series, we're, we're honestly a little bit buoyant. Bear with us. It's strange for us, too. I'm sure we'll get over it. Uh, But joining me in our New York studio, in the meantime, to bask in this fleeting ray of sunshine, our D.C. correspondent, the glorious Jane Coaston. Hey, Jane. Hello, Holly. And uh, I think it's best to think of tonight kind of like how you would watch an SNL episode on Hulu. You get like three really good sketches, two good digital shorts, and you just move past all the middle stuff. (laughs) We have been given a serious dose of like medicine man heart tonic tonight. Starting right around the time Joe Biden showed up, uh, continuing through Tim Kaine's aw shucks debut, and concluding with what was, even by his standards, a rafter rattler from President Obama. It was tremendous. Joe Biden went full Joe Biden. He told us that Donald Trump was giving us malarkey, because that's true. Malarkey! And for Joe Biden, that is the harshest swear he could come up with. Well, I mean... Well, yeah, okay. I feel like Joe Biden knows cusses for positions that we can't even dream of. No, yeah, yeah. This is a. I I was thinking this about Tim Kaine also. That Tim Kaine kind of reminded me of uh, Bob Saget, the dad from Full House. In that, yeah, like he's you know he's really kind and sweet, but I bet he has some sort of joke that is like you would get removed from like federal facilities for telling it. (laughs) I do enjoy this apparent pivot that we're taking from dangerous uncle to PTA dad in the vice president slot. That's going to be a fun one. I agree. All right. So let's talk about things that we maybe were not so crazy about. The early part of tonight started to feel like a telethon to me. Uh, a big focus of the evening was gun violence. There was a mother of a victim of the Orlando massacre. We had Chris Murphy, he of the gunning filibuster. And this would be a good time to talk about legislation uh, in gun control that would actually be effective, unlike let's not even get into everything that was wrong with the bill that Chris Murphy was filibustering for uh, and how nothing got accomplished of substance after the Orlando massacre. Uh, And once again, we know that conventions are carnivals and, you know, this is not the time for policy debate, no matter how much wonks like me and Jane might wish otherwise. But... I hope that this is just a preview. I hope that there will be more of this on the campaign trail when they have the floor, especially since, uh, is it me or have the Democrats cornered national security, uh, safety in America, patriotism, uh, religion throughout this campaign in a way that we didn't have time to get into in the RNC because they were all too busy yelling about Hillary's email? Yeah, uh, it's... A masterstroke, I would say, in being able to get literally anyone who wanted to to talk about how much they trusted Hillary, how much they would look to Hillary. I personally think that the line of the night was for, from a former judge advocate general who said that Donald Trump's ideas weren't law and order. They were criminal intent. I know that was aimed at me. This, I know was, a, that, this was the daddest night of American politics that I have ever seen because I completely forgot about that guy. I... I was so on Twitter last night I was up late and a bunch of people were talking about oh you know I think a real issue here is that Hillary's getting killed with white men without college degrees which I okay 
But, it, you know, she really needs to do something to focus on the needs of white men, middle class, white, you know, working class white men. Won't someone today, think of the middle class white man in American politics? Indeed. But if that they got it. Today was the most like if you were a 45 year old white guy, tonight was your night. You had Michael Bloomberg basically being like, I'm not a Democrat, but I'm going to vote for this person because this other guy that I'm way richer than seems like an asshole. And you had, you know. You had Leon Panetta. You had all of these people, you know, who were, you know, not liberals, not progressives, but all these people who seem to recognize like, well, I think that what they're doing in short is making it not so much liberal versus conservative. It's sane versus fucking crazy pants. And we're going to save maybe for a darker tea time of the soul the thought that I can't believe this is what this choice has been reduced to. Yep. And tonight we're just going to bask in the fact that we are not coming down here with hearts of lead. We need this. We we need this moment of just kind of twirling in a sea of confetti. I will take this. I will take this over every avocado farmer, over every racist police chief, over every general who speaks, who randomly then retweets anti-Semitic tweets. I'll take it. I will take it all. One line that really stuck with me from tonight uh, was from Kristen Kavanaugh, who said, this election is not about Trump's values. It's about our own. And I thought that was, A, a beautiful one-line rebuttal to the RNC, and B, a really great prescription for what should be ahead. You know, this is this is all true. And Donald Trump is presenting himself in a way that makes it very easy to make this election all about him in a way that we complained last week Republicans were making it all about Hillary. But at some point, we got to start hearing people talking about, okay, well, Hills, what you got? Right. Like, we we know we know what the other guy's got. We know what the other guy has not got. What are you going to do? And again, I, I'm trying not to get unrealistic expectations for conventions, but I'm more than ready to start hearing some real policy discussions, and I cannot wait to get into that. Well, I think, for one, it must be really challenging for someone like Hillary, who you know, if if you ran into Hillary Clinton at a coffee sh- shop, she would definitely spend about an hour talking to you about cap and trade. And she's got a paper on it, and she's got links for you, and she's like, she would skip a meeting to keep talking to you about it. But she's running against someone who, if you remember in Harry Potter, there was a monster called a Bogart that would turn into whatever you were most afraid of. Donald Trump manages to do that in reverse. He turns into whatever it is that people want. Like, oh, you want big government? I will give you the biggest. It'll build you a wall across the southern border. But I'm also a conservative. But I'm also a liberal, and I love gay people. And so it must be challenging to go against something that there is no policy prescription from Donald Trump. He has no policy. His policy is, we'll look into it. I mean, even today he said something like, oh, would you consider Crimea to be part of Russia? I am guessing this is the first time he's ever heard the word Crimea. I was going to say, we'll look into it means we're going to look into an atlas. Right. Like, because we got to figure out where that is first. Somebody on his team is just like, all right, here's Wikipedia, and that's what Crimea is. But, like, that, I mean, that's challenging to go with. Like, if you've got a battle of ideas, that's something. A battle of just conceptualizations of nationhood, like, yeah. that's more challenging. Yeah, think of it. You're Hillary, you're grown up Tracy Flick. Uh, with fewer instances of, of getting caught, 
and you are fighting against a small child who has been asked by Santa Claus to describe his dream rocket ship. And he's like, it's got a carousel and it's got a cotton candy machine and it also makes popcorn and it can fly upside down, but there's windows everywhere, but it's also, it's always light inside, but it's dark in space and it, it's encrusted in rubies and it runs on liquid gold and there's no nap times inside ever. And imagine how like as a super high strung lady myself like imagine how goddamn frustrating that must be i i like she has superhuman composure i cannot imagine it i cannot jane now that we've gotten our daily complaining out of the way i do want to talk for a minute about one serious moment that i thought was done really well uh looking back something that really strikes me is uh including michelle obama on Monday, uh, the Mothers of the Movement on Tuesday, and tonight, Christine Lenonen, the a former Michigan State Trooper and her, the mother of a son who died in the Orlando massacre. The most powerful moments of all three nights of the DNC so far, uh, right up until I would say Obama's speech, have all come from mothers. That's true. And I think it really... That's something that I think has been really effective in that it's talking about... It's not about being angry exactly it's about being being ang- purposefully angry being angry with a direction and being you know the victim of tragedy and then wanting to do something about it which i think is something the mothers of the movement talked about yesterday and i think that the mother of the um victim of the pulse shooting talked about today that she wanted you know that she mentioned how when her son was born she locked up her gun that she had for being a state trooper in a lockbox because, and then she was saying that, you know, those common sense gun laws kept my son safe when he was born. Where were they when he died? Yeah. And I think that that was something that was, you know, that was poignant, and but it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't angry. It was mm-hmm. just real. And again, it feels, you know, it, it feels facile a little bit to draw these Grover over, under, and through near far comparisons. But when I think back on the past three days, the most affecting moments of this convention have been quiet moments. Joe Biden, you know, who obviously has been through a tremendous deal of personal trauma, you know, came out as Joe Biden, did the Joe Biden thing, called Michelle Obama kid. But when he got that room to shut up for a second, and when he dropped his voice to a normal speaking tone, because breaking everyone speaking in Philadelphia for this entire week, microphones are a thing. And this one line from Biden was one that he delivered in the softest possible tones. And he's describing Donald Trump. And he was given the space to speak quietly. And he just says his cynicism is unbounded. And that's it. And it it raises the question, and there's a genuine USA, USA, USA chant at this moment in Biden's speech, which I never thought I would see a USA chant at a political convention that I didn't want to roll my eyes at, because is that one thing we can all agree is demonstrably true? But is this where the ideological right uh, loses its self-asserted monopoly on patriotism? I, I believe it is. And I believe that even kind of the stalwarts of the ideological right are seeing that right now because they know they gave it up. They gave it up when they nominated someone who does not appear to like America as we conceive of it. Um, and I think that that's something that Obama and Biden really played on very skillfully by quote, you know, Obama quoted Reagan and talked about a city on a hill and then 
talked about how Trump saw America as a divided crime scene. Like, it was, I mean, I think it was really effective in recognizing, like, you know, yeah, there's some shit we need to do. There's some, some shit we need to solve. But we can do it together, and it's going to work out, which I think is a message that, you know, after the RNC, after Trump's speech especially, you were kind of left with, oh, my God, that's terrifying. Like, I don't feel terrified. I feel sort of like pleasantly uplifted but spurred to further action, which I think is kind of the point. Yeah, it's, I feel, man, I feel American right now. It'll pass. It's true. You know, Biden was given the space to speak quietly, you know, and to work thoughtfully through an argument on stage. And Obama has always been like this, and it's been, you know, it's been my favorite thing about him. Uh, He seems like an intellectually curious dude. And I've said more than once that I'm going to be sorry, you know, to lose that, that it didn't really seem like there was anybody in this race for president who had that just that hunger to if he didn't know something well here comes every book ordered off amazon prime you know in the middle of the night and by god he's going to dig into every one of them and it was really interesting i think more people maybe accepted it tonight because this is not the first time obama has made this point but to hear him say to hear anybody from either side give the nod to you know, one president is, isn't going to solve this. These aren't, these huge, complex, sprawling issues are never going to be solved with one bill or one conversation or one veto or a rubber stamp or a speech or a filibuster. You know, it was the fact that Obama is finally in a place now chronologically where he doesn't even have to pretend to say, we can solve this in my time. Like we're finally, we have this little window where we are allowed to be purely pragmatic and logical about what's next. And as a pragmatic person to a fault, that's insanely attractive to me. I agree. And then, God, speaking of intellectual curiosity, reading, uh, reading up on Tim Kaine's background, you know, I didn't, I didn't know a great deal about him. Uh, he kind of started to seem in the past few days like somebody who could maybe fill that void. I thought that Tim Kaine might be an intellectually curious dude, and that was a relief. I did not realize the full width and breadth of Tim Kaine's blood-borne dork-assness until yep. tonight. Uh, cheering the Jesuits, my, my favorite quote of Tim Kaine, can I tell you something funny about the Senate? That sounds like a yes. Oh. It is morning in America, and Tim Kaine made pancakes and accidentally mixed up baking soda and baking powder, but he's going to eat them all and smile because he's just happy that God has given him another day. Whenever he gets into the limo with Hillary Clinton and their team, he asks everyone if they've put on their seatbelts, even though there aren't seatbelts in limos. I 100% believe this. I also, and we'll talk more and more about Tim Kaine in the weeks to come, because Jane, you and I are both fairly dry and cynical people ourselves, and it is a mark of what we have been dragged through the past week and a half that we looked at this guy's horrific Donald Trump impression, which he did on stage at the Democratic National Convention, and we were like, yes, more of this, please. Please do your Jay Leno. Please do your Jack Nicholson. Please do voices. Please make us balloon animals, Tim Kaine. I know you can make balloon animals. Are you going to pull a quarter out of my ear? I also think that from a perspective of dealing with a thin-skinned, orange-haired, sheepskin-covered Volkswagen that is the Republican opposition. Do you want to try that again? (laughs) 
Volkswagens are fine cars. I know, but I was just trying to think of something small and silly. Oh, um, hmm, something small and silly. Like an, a marmoset. Yes, a thin-skinned, orange-haired marmoset. All right, I'll go with that. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay. We were born ready. I'm just keeping that exchange in. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies um, and gentlemen, Michael Catano. I just like imagining Tim Kaine, Jesuit educated, a former missionary and civil rights attorney, making fun of Donald Trump, a thin-skinned, orange-haired marmoset, and how, for Donald Trump, that must drive him nuts. As someone who cannot handle being made fun being of. Being made fun of by somebody who intentionally chose to be poor after college. Yes. Oh, oh, that is. Dude. I think the only thing that could be worse is if he were made fun of by, like, a priest. Man, between him and Bloomberg, was tonight reverse engineered to m- call Donald Trump poor in every possible way they could think of? Because if so, I take back, like, 40% of the things I've said about the DNC not knowing what to do about a gift wrapped package. Yeah, I think, I mean, I like the idea that Tim Kaine was going at him for being poor in spirit, as the Jesuits mm-hmm. would say. And uh, Bloomberg was just going after him for being poor. Yeah. All right, let's 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 talk about the big guy, uh, and then we'll wind down for the night because we need a nap after this. I Every time I hear Obama speak this year, and usually involves some form of nostalgia. It usually involves somebody bringing up, you know, either the early years of his presidency or in this case, you know, his barn burner of a convention speech in 04. And all I can think about is, and he talked about this himself early in the speech, just as I was thinking about it. God, being president sucks. Like it it sucks so bad. It is the worst job. And if you don't believe me, look at President Obama in 2004 and look at his face now. And he is he has aged, you know, maturity sits well on him and whatnot. You know, he's a good looking dude, but oh my God, being president is the fucking worst. It really is. And I really think that that was another thing that was hammered home today was the degree to which I think Donald Trump sees the presidency as like an ascension to like being king or some sort. It's a Pokemon. Right. He wants to have it. Yeah. But today really made it clear that it is a responsibility that you should probably not want. Like, yes, you are the most powerful person in the world, but you're also the most loathed human being alive and you cannot do anything and every decision is on you. And I think, you know, even thinking back to George W. Bush, like George W. Bush in 2000 and George W. Bush in 2008. 2008, George W. Bush looks like 2000, George W. Bush's father. Like, yeah. they look like, oh, it's his uncle. No, it's the same person. Like, it is a really terrible, hard job Yeah, that should be given respect and temerity. And I think that that's what Obama got across tonight. And, you know, it's something we toss off. We're not the first people to make this this comparison, but it's something we say a lot. You kind of have to be a sociopath to want to be president. And I've kind of changed my mind on that over the past year looking at Obama. I don't think it's an insult anymore. I think you might have to need to be a sociopath to be president. Does that make any sense, that distinction? I think so. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the speech. What was your favorite part? I mean, pick one. We've basically just been rolling around like baby pandas, grabbing our feet for the last hour. The last, anytime he starts getting into the cadence, yeah. and he starts kind of driving upwards, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. The guy but can the, preach. But the moment 
even there was a video before his speech and it showed him when he sang Amazing Grace at oh, the service God. for the Charleston Nine. And Wrecked. I was like, oh, this is going to do me in. Yeah. I, and I really think that, um, and I liked, you know, the throwaway lines, like, don't boo, vote. Or talking about, you know, like Ginger Rogers, Hillary Clinton did everything I did, but backwards, backwards and in heels. pumps. Right. And, but then also another throwaway line was that, you know, when his Kansan grandparents came to this country, you know, probably without birth certificates, which the number of like... <laughs> he was not laughing on no, that line either. No, he was not. The number of subtle burns he got on uh-huh. Donald Trump, like... You know it he's was been just, storing this up since that correspondence oh, oh my dinner. God. That was what, 2011? Like that's... Yeah. yeah. That's been there. You know, in knowing for a while, obviously, that Hillary was always going to run again, as an admirer of things like great white sharks and other killing machines, I had always, from a very clinical standpoint, looked forward to spinning up of the Clinton machine one last time just because I like to watch, you know, fantastic contraptions in action. And I was like, you know, I had this very starry picture of, of Bill Clinton from watching him get elected in the fifth fucking grade. And I was like, oh, the Clintons in one last election. And then, of course, Bill kind of turns out to be a little bit of a shit show when he's off the reservation. But oh man, it has been replaced with a new monster to admire. Can you imagine President Obama in like October? Oh my God. The speechifying, you know, Holly, we've both followed college football for a long time and there's always that one game for any Heisman candidate where you just go, oh my God, here we go. And that is Obama when he gets speaking. When you know you're about to watch somebody run through a brick fucking wall. Yep. Yep. And emerge without a scratch. Yep. You get your Reggie Bush 2004 breaking nine tackles on a single run, and you're just like, well, that w- that's it. We should just give him the award now. With just as many message board conspiracies. Indeed. Uh, we could sit here and talk about this speech all night, but we're exhausted. Uh, the good news is, for once, we're exhausted in kind of a good way. Uh, we're going to turn in tonight, but we'll be back tomorrow night for the final night of the Democratic National Convention and back with you again with our regular stakes episode on Friday. For me and Jane here in New York and from all of us here at MTV News, thanks for listening. This has been Stakes After Dark. Sad. Good night, Jane. Good night, Holly. <laughs>